This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. This episode of Knife Talk is sponsored by Tormac. For your chance to win a T4 sharpening system, visit knifetalk.net to enter the draw. The winner will be chosen on our 10th show and will receive a Tormek T4 and a set of jigs to make your knives razor sharp. So welcome to Knife Talk. Today I'll be speaking with Liam from Hoffman Blacksmithing. Now Liam's not only just an all-round nice guy, but he's also a Forged in Fire champion. And he hand-forges the most amazing knives and axes. So, so welcome to the show, Liam. Hey, Craig. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. It's really good to be speaking to you today. So, so let's set the scene. Whereabouts in the world are you? Um, I am in the Appalachian Mountains of North Carolina. It's the furthest northwestern tip right there bordering Tennessee. A um, lot of kind of mountain culture here. It's the highest elevation east of the Mississippi River uh, in the United States. And so it's pretty quiet up here. Just keep to myself and bake axes and knives. <laughs> and do you have your workshop at home or do you have a separate place where you go to work? How does that work? Right now, my workshop is at my dad's house. Uh, we're working on uh, a new shop. I'm building a new shop right now on my own property. But right now, it's at my dad's house. It's the shop that I've been working in since I was 13 or 14 years old. And it's kind of evolved over the last seven to eight years. Um, and I've pretty much just maxed it out at this point. It's pretty, um, I don't know, not not high tech. It's just a, a wooden shack with a dirt floor. <laughs> So you've got the opportunity to build the the dream shop now then. Yeah. Um cool. so I bought I bought property, I guess it's been exactly a year ago, uh probably around this week. A year ago I bought some land outside of Boone, North Carolina, and we're putting up a new um shop in an apartment right now. Very nice, very nice. So so blacksmithing. It's a, it's an unusual hobby for a twenty year old. <laughs> so so how <laughs> yeah. how did that happen? Um, well, it's not really a great story. I guess some people expect some sort of romantic tale or something like that. <laughs> but when I was 13, um, I was simply bored one weekend. I think it was maybe a summer weekend or something. And I mean, there's not much to do around here. And if I don't know if you're familiar with this area or not, but it's there are a lot of artists and craftsmen in the Appalachian Mountains. Um, and maybe that's because there's just simply nothing to do and people get bored and then you find something to do with your hands. So I was bored one weekend and I started. Um, just hitting a piece of metal. The first thing I hit was just a piece of aluminum and it was cold. And then that same <laughs> evening I heat up a piece of scrap steel in a campfire and I just used things around the house and just got started right away. And then it just kept evolving from that. Uh, I had support from my parents yeah. and everything and discovered that I liked it, discovered that I wanted to do it for a business, not that I knew how, and it, and it just grew organically to what it is today. So did you have any formal education in blacksmithing at all? No, I've had no formal mentoring or anything like that with blacksmithing. Right. Okay. So who did you sort of look up to when you were learning the craft? Uh, so when I was first starting, I it was pretty much YouTube, stars, stuff like that, like Trollsky, um, 
Walter Sorrells, guys like that. There were a few books that I had, was reading, um, but there wasn't wasn't really anyone locally that was doing it. There, there's a couple people locally, but I didn't really know them at the time. I was really young, and I'm not a very outgoing person, so I don't go up and just meet people when I'm 13 years old, <laughs> grown men. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's mainly uh, internet type um, role okay. models and stuff like that. Okay, okay. So, I mean, I'm not a blacksmith. I'm just, just a humble knife maker. So, you know, stock removal is my thing, really. So the, the closest I get to changing the sort of composition of a metal is, is just the heat treating process. So so if I wanted to get into hand forging sort of billets of steel or layering up my own Damascus, what words of advice would you, would you have for a newcomer, a newcomer to blacksmithing like myself? Hmm. Well, I think a lot of the problem that people have is just getting started. Um, a lot of people don't know how to get started and they keep waiting and waiting until they never do get started. Hmm. And uh, I think people are intimidated by maybe the tools that they think that they have to acquire or the money that they think that they have to spend to get started. But in reality, all you need to do is go out, find a heavy object that's an anvil, any hammer, pliers for tongs and a piece of metal to hit on, and you just need to start doing it. Um, put hours and hours of practice under your belt and then resources for you to go look at. I'm sure you already know a bunch of people on YouTube um, are doing instructional stuff, forums, Facebook, but you do have to be careful with what you do look at because there's probably more misinformation out there on the internet right now about blacksmithing (laughs) as there is good information. Everyone's an expert, eh? uh, Yeah, and it's hard to uh, differentiate what is actually helpful and what is not. Some people have a hard time um, picking and choosing who to follow. And and, uh, so you just have to kind of go out there and do it and see whose advice you want to take. Yes, yeah. And any books or courses that you could recommend at all? Uh, As far as getting into it, beginning, um, well, depending on where you live, there's a few schools around me that do those types of things. Um, trade schools and then other blacksmiths like myself that do classes. I do one-on-one classes. Um, there's no, I can't think of anything specific. Like there's not just one thing hmm. Hmm. to get that I know of a book. Uh, I'm actually coming out with a book though. <laughs> uh, publishing there, we, a paper- there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm publishing a paperback though uh, this year. It's really close. I'm just working on the aesthetics of the cover and everything right now. Oh, cool. uh, and it is talking about, I don't talk about any techniques, how to do any, how to make anything. I talk about things that I don't think are covered as much, which is how to set up a shop, how much money is needed, what tools you need, how long you should expect to get those tools. And then I have different shop budgets. So a thousand dollar shop, a $3,000 shop, a $0 shop, and what you can expect to do in those shops, stuff like that. How to teach. I have a section on how to teach yourself because that is difficult knowing how to teach yourself when you don't have someone else to teach you how to be so self-motivated. Uh, so that's what my book's going to be about kind of how to set up. And there's not as much information about that online as I think there could be. And I get a lot of questions every day on Facebook and Instagram, um, from people who 
have not started blacksmithing but want to start and they always ask me how do i start or <laughs> how do i do this it seems like it costs a lot of money i really never ever get anyone ask me how to make something like it's always how do i get this piece of equipment or how do i actually start you know yeah yeah well it's cool you're putting a resource out there to help people like me and that's that that's always going to be cool so yeah. so let's talk about your time on forged in fire so overall was that was that a positive experience yeah, I'd say it was. It was um, an interesting experience. There's a lot more that goes behind it um, than you see on television. You now, know, did they temper at all? That's the biggest question everybody wants to know. <laughs> you never oh, see anybody yeah. tempering at anything. <laughs> yeah, they made that unclear in the first couple seasons, and they're making. I think they're making more of an attempt to make that clear in the um, current seasons that they do temper the blades. Yeah. Um, because they make it out to be that I don't know if I'm like voiding a contract here or talking about this, but they make it out to be that the first two rounds of the episode takes place in one day. And and then, you know, that doesn't make sense because the blades need to be tempered before they do the testing and everything. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And so there there's time in between there. And after the blades are hardened, they go into a heat treating oven that night. Um for 400 degrees for two hours twice and the length of the heat treating oven is what creates the length parameters for the challenges right. that they have <laughs> <laughs> i've got you i've got you i mean i've spoken to walter sorrels on the show and and he mentioned the heat there in the studio it seems like that's a real problem for some of the contestants yeah it depends on when you film too because they're filming all year long mine was in june so it was pretty hot uh <laughs> one of the guys on my episode passed out or almost passed out for a minute there jeez jeez so so how has that affected your business becoming a forged in fire champion and has it had a big impact on your business at all uh yeah it's had a it's had a great impact um it is definitely not the biggest thing that's ever happened there have been bigger impacts from things that you wouldn't expect than from forged in fire um but it's definitely hasn't heard it at all you know becoming a fortune fire champion um it's it's more of just kind of like a personal achievement like i can say i did that and everything um and i went there because i knew it was probably a good opportunity that i didn't want to pass up um you know three years from now if i had decided that I didn't want to do it then, but then three years from now, I decided I do want to do it. Maybe they're not even filming that anymore or who knows. So I uh, decided to just go on it and I'm a really competitive, very competitive person. So uh, <laughs> it's my kind of thing. Cool. 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 So, so let's go back to your work. Um, I, I've, I've got a Grand Falls Brooks small forest axe, which, which, uh, which I love. Um, but what, what but, it against you? Yeah, exactly. I mean, but I'm just been looking at your axes, and they seem to be of like even higher quality. I mean, have your designs evolved over time, or did you just hit the ground running with with the current designs that you have? No, my axes are an ever evolving thing, just like with any of my work. Um, I started axes three and a half or so years ago. Right about my senior year of high school, I was starting axes, but I had been making knives since um, I was 13, hmm. about eight years ago. Um, so I've been, I started out with the axes, and um, I mean, it, the original axe that I made's got kind of a similar shape to the axes that I have now, but it's, it's evolved a lot in every single aspect. And um, 
I, I was selling them all throughout the building process. So there's axes out there that people own that are just nothing like the current axes that I have. But, um, and I don't regret selling those earlier axes. It's something that I really, I needed to do, I think in my situation. Yes. Yeah. But uh, it, I didn't, um, like spend three years in a cave developing this ultimate ax and then one day released it. And it's been the same ever <laughs> since. It so it's, is it's just definitely been a natural always progression, changed. I assume. Yeah, it, and I learn a little bit more about it, and I change a little bit one thing, and and I look back in acts that I made a year ago when I thought I was pretty hot stuff, and then I look at that axe and I'm like, wow, that, <laughs> that axe has some serious issues. And I'm sure a year from now I'll look back on one of my axes now and see something um, that needed to be changed and whatnot. Yeah, I think that's a natural thing for most makers, isn't it? Everybody wants to get better at what they do. And, uh, you know, eventually you will become better, and you look back at your older stuff and think, yeah, ugh. maybe not a load of crap, but you just think, oh, I could do so much better now, you know? Yeah. Hmm. So I need to get on your order list. <laughs> so what sort of weight do you have for the for these orders at the moment? Uh, unfortunately, right now it's pushing 15 months. Oosh, oosh. That's a nice problem to have. Yeah, yeah, it's um, not. It's still not a good problem, though. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I my shop is maxed out right now. We've the if you saw the shop and then saw what we were producing in terms of quantity, I think your mind would be blown. I mean, <laughs> I have as to my abilities, I have maxed out my shop setting in terms of production as much as it can be. And I'm, we're basically just waiting to move into the new shop so I can reduce that lead time and start increasing volume. Yes. Yeah. So is it just yourself in the shop or do you have other people working alongside you? I have one guy, Andreas, who works part-time with me in the shop and then, um, one full-time person doing emails, logistics, all that stuff. And then another part-time person helping with the emails and everything as well. So there's, four of us including me right now yeah i mean i think that's a really good point i mean how do you scale up a business which relies so heavily on on yourself and on hand handcrafting you know it's it's got to be difficult well that's the that's the big question that's the really difficult part and what's and it's what i've been working on and still working on for the past um let's see i really started diving into increasing volume and everything last january so it's been about a year and a half now that um, it might, my goal is always increase quality, but um, you, you know, you jump leaps and bounds when you first start and then it slows down a little bit as the progression, you know, maybe my changes that I make today are really small, whereas changes two years ago were really big in the quality of the acts. So now the big changes are being made in um, increasing production quantities you know, eliminating one heat in my process. If it takes me 10 heats to make an ax is 20, you know, one heat is 10% of my production. It's 10% increased income. It's a huge thing. So trying to figure out how to maximize my space, um, for production is, has been, uh, a fun challenge for me the past year or so. And, um, and then I've got some hopes for the next few years. I've got kind of a vision on what I want to do. I want to keep increasing production. I want to three or 
three or four times doing what I'm doing now. And, um, but I want to do that while still using machines that rely on a skilled operator. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with making products that have closed die operations or CNC operations, but the machine, those operations are more heavily reliant on the engineer that made the, that designed those dies or the, the CNC programmer or whatever that made that program, not so much the operator of the machine at that time. And I want to use machines that are reliant on the person operating the yes, machine. Yeah. 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 And as you say, yeah, it's it's a completely different scale, isn't it? Scaling up via CNC and so on. I mean, last the last show I spoke to Aaron Goff and his setup is it's incredible, but the amount of skill involved in, in setting that up is 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 just way beyond me and way beyond most people, you know? Yeah, it's 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 it could be it's a lot easier for me to go and invest seventy thousand dollars in getting drop forging dies made and just subbing it out to a company in Tennessee. Mm. I've looked into it. It would be so easy. But then um the quality of my you know, what my brand is built on, it would be going against that and uh I don't want to do that right now. There's been lots of makers who have done that and are really successful right now and I don't look like down upon them for that. It's just their decision what you want your product to be and that's yes, not what I yeah. want my product to be. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So are you finding that blacksmithing and knife making are becoming more popular as hobbies now? Are you are you hearing from more and more people getting into the in, into this as a hobby? Yeah, it's as you know, it's growing a lot. It's probably I guess it's still growing. I don't know if it's hit its peak yet or not. Probably not, but um over the last basically eight years or longer, basically the time span that I've been doing this, it has kept growing and getting more popular. Um, when I was first starting, the biggest, probably one of the bigger blacksmithing forms that were, were out there was iForge Iron. I don't know if it's as, as big anymore. There's been some others that have come in, mm. taken its place. Mainly YouTube has made some of the forums obsolete, yeah. um, as well as the information you get on Facebook and Instagram. <clears throat> But so, it's it's always growing right now, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yourself, did you ever consider a different career, or were you were you set along this path from, <laughs> from that early age? Nope, I'm very bullheaded. <laughs> at 13 years old, at 13 years old, I was going to be a blacksmith. Mm. So, did you go straight from school to starting your own business? Yeah, I graduated wow. high school in 2014. I didn't go to didn't do college, um, but I mean, my senior year in high school, I was working. 30 hours, 35 hours a week. Wow. And, um, I already had somewhat of a, you know, small client base and had most of my equipment set up. And so while I'm in high school doing this, I don't have any expenses. I can put it all straight back into the business and it helped to grow the business organically. I yeah. didn't have to have any sort of help. And so by the time I'm out of high school, um, and I do start getting expenses, you know, I have most of the business stuff paid for. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, how did you sell your first product? You know, if you, if you come straight from school and you're you're out there making stuff, how how was that first product sold? Is that is that sort of an online thing or is it via locals? How does that happen? I think I sold my first knife when I was 16 at a local craft fair. It was a knife, and um, so that was just at a show. You know, people walk up and buy it. Yeah. Um, but as it evolved and everything, like by the time I'm getting out of high school. 
I, I really don't have any, I mean, I've got a few local customers, but the area that I live in is very poor. I think the average income around here is $17,000 a year. And so most of the products that I make don't fall into the price bracket of local customers. So I have to put all of my business online. And by high school, I had already figured that out. Yeah. And I'm, at that point, I'm starting to push Instagram and Facebook more and just learning marketing as I go and stuff. And um, I've got the starting to get the website developed. I think I got the website finished maybe a year after high school or something. And starting to put more effort towards online sales and everything and not not go to the shows because the shows aren't very profitable gotcha. it's kind of a yeah. thing of the past okay okay so i mean i really enjoy your your instagram and, and your youtube channel is brilliant too but it seems that younger smiths such as yourself and maybe alex Steele and the likes of these kind of people they've really managed to make social media work for you for you so how has social media played a part in the success of hoffman blacksmithing well, it's cheap, easy, well, not always easy, but it's cheap <laughs> advertising and anyone can do it as long as you put the hours into it. And um, there's a few things I've learned on Instagram specifically that probably relate over to Facebook and YouTube in terms of um, converting Instagram posts into sales and whatnot. And for me, for my brand, and this will probably apply to all other blacksmiths and bladesmiths and craftspeople out there. The, the customer is buying you, not the product that you make. Yes. I mean, they're buying you along with the product that you make. They're buying a story and they're, and you know, they're buying an experience. They're not just buying a 1999 X from Walmart that they don't know who made. They don't know what the story is behind it. So when I'm focusing my Instagram posts, um, I do put personal life stuff in there. I, I mean, I, I put a hint of personal, um, things in the descriptions and in the posts and try to keep it on a down to earth level. Um, I, <clears throat> I, I try to increase the frequency of my posts. So I found a direct correlation between the amount of posts and the amount of orders I get. Right. Okay, um, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. About a year ago or maybe less than a year ago, I was posting on Instagram maybe zero to three times a day, just kind of, I mean, it wasn't a strict schedule. Mm. And then I decided that I was going to post every two hours. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I put a timer on my phone and every two hours I would post on Instagram and my orders went from like, um, maybe one to five axes a week to 35. Wow. And it was instant. It was like, the first week that I did that, it was instant results. And I was, so that was a pretty interesting thing to see firsthand that, um, you know, the correlation between posts, not that I post two hours anymore. Cause that got crazy. I couldn't <laughs> keep up with it by myself. Um, I mean, that's an insane amount of photos seven days a week. So now I've got it to three times a day and it's all I can do to keep up with that. I got to keep a, a, DSLR in my shop and try to take photos or I just take videos on my phone. Sometimes I slack on it, but uh, at least I know like if, if I want to increase orders, this is what I have to do. Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting the different types of customers and different types of vibes that you get from these different social media platforms. 
Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, um, Facebook. If, if you're a craftsman listening to this right now, I'll say that if you're advertising, doing your thing on Facebook, get a Facebook group, not a Facebook page or your personal page, get a closed group. It's like, uh, I don't know. I guess it's because there's like a sense of community. Like you're in this closed group and when you're in that group, you feel uh, maybe more connected to the maker. Like I said, your brand is built on largely yourself. So people want to feel connected to that. So they join your group. And the brilliant thing about it is whenever I post to my group page, everyone gets notified. Whereas when you post to uh, like my Hoffman blacksmithing page, Mm. Um, it just is in your feed. You don't get yeah. notified and the person may or may not see that in their feed. And so my Facebook group has only like 4,200 people in it. And, uh, my Instagram is it's like 58,000 or something. I get more, um, connection and more reaction from people in my facebook group than i do my instagram page oh that's that's really good to know actually so and the fact that you're not reliant on you know facebook's algorithms it, it's going to everybody within that group that's really yeah good. and the and the i still have the facebook page but i don't work on it at all because on instagram you just push post to facebook hmm. and it will post to my facebook page my business page automatically so all you're seeing on my facebook business page is my instagram feed and so i've got so i've got the group the page instagram and then the youtube thing is something that i recently started doing hmm. um which is was kind of like an extracurricular thing wasn't sure what it was going to do for me or anything um but i started posting videos twice a week on YouTube and um, got really good responses from that. Um, I had, I found out that I had some customers that followed me on Instagram and Facebook, but they were kind of on the fence about buying an ax. And then the YouTube videos for some reason put them over the fence and they um, decided to purchase an ax after seeing the YouTube videos. And I had people come up to me at the blade show multiple people tell me the same thing. And I thought that that was really interesting that YouTube is what caused them to do that. And maybe that's because they can see me on a more personal level, like working, like they can see it, it happening. Hmm. You know, they see the experience and they like to buy that experience. Yes. It sort of builds that level of trust, I assume as well. Yeah. Yeah. On a way that Instagram and Facebook doesn't. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so I won't go too much into your sort of personal life here, but um, so how do you relax away from the workshop? Well, um, there's really not much of that, but the things that I do outside of the shop would be um, mountain biking, hiking, swimming, uh, camping, stuff like that. Um, I like doing backpacking trips and stuff like that. I want to get into bike packing bike which packing. Is, never heard of that. yeah never heard yeah of that. so it's just like it's just like backpacking but on a bike long distance oh right okay cool cool so i want to try stuff like that but um i mean there's not much time away from the shop so <laughs> it's a very limited personal life time yes i can imagine i can imagine so here in europe um i, I tend to spend my time either in the uk or in france um, but I find it very difficult to get steel tools and consumables and so on. So I often end up importing stuff from the USA. 
Um, so you, yourself being in the USA, you, you are, as you say, you may be a bit cut off from a lot of the bigger cities. Um, do you have suppliers locally? How, how do you get hold of the stuff that you need? Uh, nothing locally. Everything is online. Mm. Um, and all of the specialty steels, the knife steels and the tool steels, you're – I don't I don't know if there are really any retail stores where you can purchase that. Your 1018 and your A36 mild steels, you can, you know, get at a welding supply store pretty much anywhere in the country. Yeah. yeah. But um all of the axe stock and uh, I order online, I'll get it. I'll get 2000 pounds at a time just delivered on a crate, you know, from a tractor trailer. And um the wood, actually the wood for the axe handles, the lumber um, comes from a place, a lumber yard that's, uh, hour and a half away from me. And that's the closest, pretty much the closest lumber yard for that. But there's, yeah, there's really nothing locally that I can, uh, get those types of supplies from. It's, it's all online. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, you say nothing locally, but it's all within your country. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. As a, I'm no, a, we are fortunate that way. Yes. Yeah. So I just want to give a, a very quick shout out actually to Zach from Preferred Abrasives. Um, because he's they're the guys I get my abrasives from, um, and even though it's come from the US, it's still cheaper to buy from them than it is from anywhere else in the country, in the world, <laughs> in the world for me, which which is just crazy, crazy. So I'm, I'm going to wrap up with a couple of questions um, that I ask all of my guests. Um, so the one piece of kit in your workshop that you couldn't live without, then what's next on your shopping list? Hmm. Well, for production, the thing that I couldn't live without would be my hydraulic press. Yep. <laughs> I mean, people complain about my wait time now. Think about it if I didn't have the press. <laughs> but think of the arms you'd have. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and the next thing that I am really dying to get is a, um, it's called a copy lathe, an axe handle copy lathe or copying lathe. Right. Yeah. It, uh, it makes axe handles. So basically, uh, because right now it takes me longer to make an axe handle than it does to make an axe head. And so I've, that's like the biggest, most important thing that I need to address right now is increasing the speed of my axe handle making process. So that machine is the next thing I need to get. Basically, it roughs out the handle on a lathe, and then I go and finish it out on my sanding drum like I do now, and I'll get the same end product. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that was next on your shopping list, wasn't it? So where do you find your inspiration? Hmm. Where do I find my inspiration? Well, I find for the axe production, because the axes are really a whole separate thing from my knives, a whole separate mindset. With my axes, it is all about business and increasing quantity, of course, while not compromising quality. But it's like – so inspiration for that type of thing, I get from business people, people that don't blacksmith at all, just – I mean, I'll I'll be driving down and I'll see a, a million dollar house and like, wow, that's inspirational. And or, you know, I'll see someone driving a really nice car and say, that's inspirational hmm. or um, anything like that. People that are really successful and in, in their field, no matter what it is. I was watching this morning. I was watching on Facebook the Red Bull. It was dirt biking. It was called the Hair Challenge or something in Austria. And these dirt bikers are at the top of their game and they you know they've practiced all of their life to do this thing and it's just a grueling race and so watching guys like that come out and be successful is inspirational to me 
so things like that, I find inspiration from other successful people in terms of axe making and production. Now, in terms of knife making, I look up to other knife makers that are doing pieces of art because my knife work is not geared towards production. It's most of them are one-offs. It's more artistic and I'm, you know, I'm going for pure beauty yes, as well yeah. as function. So some other knife makers that I look up to would be like uh, Jason Knight, Michael Quisenberry, uh, Sam Lurkwin, um, Nick Wheeler, guys like that. Uh, Nick Wheeler. Can't think of everyone. Nick Wheeler comes up on the show every single episode. <laughs> every time. <laughs> that, that's because he um, got an early kind of – I mean for the guys that are in like – I'll say my generation of blacksmithing yeah, um, who were learning around the same time I was, he his information was out there on the internet. He was one of the biggest players in educational videos. So a lot of the people – that were learning blacksmithing at the same time I am have all seen Nick Wheeler. And so he's kind of established himself. I mean, everyone knows Nick Wheeler in the knife making yes, community. Yeah. yeah. I've been trying to get him on the show, but he, he's just too busy, always too busy, which is, which is completely understandable. <laughs> you know? Playing with his dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So if people want to know more about you, um, about your knives, about your axes, and even about your your amazing swords. Which I've just been looking at the swords on your site as well, which are, which are just incredible, incredible work. But where can I find out more about you? Um, well, the best place is my website. I mean, everything that I have about me is public. Instagram is Hoffman Blacksmithing. My Facebook is Hoffman Blacksmithing. YouTube's Hoffman Blacksmithing. Websites Hoffman Blacksmithing. <laughs> so if you just if you just Google Hoffman Blacksmithing, you can find out pretty much anything you need to know about me or my business. Um, but if you have any other questions, then you can uh, email email me or Karen uh, at any time, or give us a call. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, hopefully you'll be you'll be inundated with people now asking you the same old questions, such as how do I get into blacksmithing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe the book will put that to rest. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Well, again, thank you very much, Liam, for for taking the time out. I know you're a very very busy man, um, and it really is appreciated. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks, Craig. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.